I want to preach one verse tonight, and I'm not even going to explain it all. It's our Christmas carol service, and I've chosen 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And I really want to, want to deal with this verse as a kind of devotional to warm our souls. And I've decided not to do an explicitly Christmas message, not a Christmassy kind of message, because I'm going through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings, and we finished chapter 1 this morning. I did five messages in that, many Christmas messages. More are coming because I'm going to deal with chapter 2 Next Sunday I'm starting that, and then it's Christmas Day, and then even after Christmas I'm continuing Christmas messages in the series on, on Luke. That's just the way it worked out. So I decided not to do another Christmas message this evening, but 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, that's really about the one Christmas is about, and that's Jesus. And so I've chosen the theme, Jesus is enough. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we hear his word tonight. Our Father in heaven. We draw near to you with fear and with joy. We draw near to you as creatures made of dust and ashes, knowing that we come to God who is Spirit, an eternal Spirit, an infinite Spirit, in all your wisdom and being and power and might and justice and goodness and truth and beauty. All your attributes, Lord, how can we fathom the depths of the Almighty? We pray that you would set us free. Although we are set free by Christ, help us to live not with a slave mentality, but to realize that you have set these slaves free. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And let us rejoice in that freedom and live in it, and not chase the freedom itself, but that to which the freedom leads, namely Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. <clears throat> let me read 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And because of him, that is God, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. I remember hearing this statement when I was a student. I heard this from a preacher. He said, Jesus is all you need, but you won't realize he's all you need until he's all you got. And when he's all you got, you'll realize he's all you need. And I've known that statement, as I said, since my student days. That's many years. I started studying 22 years ago. And uh, that statement, although I've known it for a long time, this week, this past week, it took on brand new meaning to me. And I'll explain that in a, in a little while. So if we, if we make the statement, if I make the statement this evening, Jesus is enough, then first of all, we see in verse 30, he is our wisdom. So what are the great questions about life? I think the great questions about life are, is there a God and can we know him? Another question people ask, 
Who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? What is the purpose of life? Where am I going? What's my destiny? What happens after death? What is truth? Who decides what is right and what is wrong? Where did sin come from? Where does death come from? Why is there suffering in the world? Now, the only way to answer those questions correctly is if you know the one who knows everything. And according to the Apostle Paul, Jesus is that wisdom of God. The treasures of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, says Colossians 2 verse 3. Our verse says, Jesus is, he has become for us wisdom from God. Verse 24 of the same chapter says, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 8, uh, a number of theologians don't believe that it points to Christ, but I believe it does. So uh, Proverbs 8 from verse 22 to the end, we read of wisdom described, how wisdom was with God from the very beginning, how wisdom was brought forth from God. God possessed this wisdom in the beginning. Now, you cannot say God created the wisdom, as some translations wrongly say, especially the Jehovah's Witness translation, New World translation, because tell me when was God's wisdom created? That would mean there was a time when God was not wise. So Christ is the one. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and therefore only the true believer can answer those great questions of life from Scripture. So that would practically imply that the Christian with a low IQ, the Christian in a backward village, the Christian who has no uh, schooling and no academic degree is wiser, I didn't say smarter, more clever, is wiser than a genius unbeliever who has seen the world, many countries, he's traveled and he's got years and years and years of life experience. That Christian is wiser than this unbeliever who's a genius. And that we see in verse 19 to 21, where Paul says it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to so save those who believe. So God just, he makes the wisdom of this world futile, nothing. Verse 24, we see Christ is the wisdom of God. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And then verse 30, Christ is, he has become to us wisdom from God. Psalm 119, verse 99 and 100, where the psalmist says, Your word makes me wiser than my enemies. I have, I have more wisdom than my teachers. Why? Because he keeps the word. He meditates on the word. You know, our, our wisdom does not lie in self. Wisdom does not lie in self. It is from God. As verse 30 says, it is from God this wisdom he has given to us in his son. And he has now united us to his son. It says in verse 30, because of God, we are in Christ Jesus. God placed us in Christ. He united us to Christ by faith. And this Christ, this Savior, this Lord has become to us wisdom 
from God. So we cannot boast in ourselves. We must boast in Him alone. We must praise Him alone. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 31. So that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, says the prophet. So do you want true wisdom? Do you want true wisdom about life? True wisdom about God? True wisdom about the world? True wisdom about history? And everything else under the sun? Verse 30 says you find it in Jesus. He has become to us wisdom from God. And you know some people are too proud to acknowledge it. They seek for wisdom in philosophy. They seek wisdom in science. They seek wisdom in other religions. Or maybe in their own minds. But they are fools. They are fools. Says Proverbs 28 verse 26. Seeking wisdom in your own mind. It's not to be found in your own mind. Claiming to be wise says the Apostle Paul. They became fools. So if you want God's wisdom. The very first step is you need to acknowledge you have no wisdom in yourself. You need God's. Chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If any one of you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may, may become wise. So acknowledge you are a fool. You are foolish. You have no wisdom. And then, then, God will reveal his wisdom to you in Christ. Verse 30. He has become to us wisdom from God. God has revealed these things to little children. He has hidden them from the learned and from the understanding, from those who think they have knowledge. So, number one is our wisdom then. Number two, he is our righteousness. I remember also during my student days, my good friend Yanni Forsler and I, he's now pastor at Paris Baptist Church, but him and I as students went and we bought ourselves each uh, bought a pair of sunglasses with colored lenses. My lenses were orange and his lenses were green. And anything you viewed through these sunglasses it took that orange glow. So everything I looked at had an orange glow and everything he would look at would have a green glow. And spiritually it works the same. So we are unrighteous. We are filthy. We are filled with sin. There is no one who does good. There is no one righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even our, our best works, our greatest righteousness is like a, a filthy rag, says Isaiah. And so we cannot stand before a holy God. His eyes are too pure to look at evil. And so the solution God then sends is His own Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, His unique Son, His special Son. He sends Christ now to be our righteousness. Verse 30, Christ who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness. He's the Lord, our righteousness, says Jeremiah 23, 6. And so Jesus being God in His divine nature, He's perfect. But also Jesus as a man, in his human nature, he has a sinless human nature, and he lived a perfect life. And so as soon as you and I trust in Jesus, you place your faith in Jesus, then God puts the righteousness of his son to your record. And all the sin you committed is written off. The debt is paid. It's nailed to the cross. There is no debt left to pay. 
God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become righteousness of God in him. And so really God sees us then through the colored lenses of Jesus' perfect life and death on the cross. And so we like my friend and I's sunglasses. Everything you look at takes that glow. And so God looks at us through Christ and we perfect in his sight. Sins forgiven, a perfect righteousness put to our, to our account. So you need nothing else. You need nothing more to come into a right standing with God. For we hold that one is made righteous or justified through faith or by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28. And David Brainerd, a missionary to the American Indians, the North American Indians in the, the U.S., uh, in the 1700s, David Brainerd missed this. He missed this before he was converted. Because Brainerd, before his conversion, before his conversion, he, he trusted in his spiritual experiences and in his re being religious. So he, even before Brainerd was converted, he loved being alone with God. He loved meditating on Scripture and spending time in prayer. So what he trusted in and he rested in was in his quiet time and not in Jesus. And you think it is, it's sufficient to just be sorry for your sin and to humble yourself and, um, and to desire God more through prayer and to believe pure doctrine, pure teaching. And he thought if he does all of those things, then he can claim God's salvation and say, now I claim it, God owes me, I've done these things. And in that way he started focusing on himself rather than Jesus. And then he became angry because God did not see his uprightness and sincerity in saving it's like he said, hey, Lord, look at my sincerity. I've been sincere. You owe me salvation. And he started thinking of God as hard. God is hard. And he became bitter toward God. And then he felt guilty for being bitter. And so, so the, the conviction of sin just increased. It became more and more. And this, this conviction of sin, because it grew so much, he now thought, now I've had enough conviction, so God will see how much conviction I've had, and he will save me. So again... Now he rested in his conviction of sin and not in Christ. And so after a very long battle, eventually, David Brainerd understood. Not the labors of my hand can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And so we saw Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. I need nothing more. And he was saved. Exactly like verse 30 says, Christ is for us righteousness. And so do not add, do not try and add to what Jesus has done. The moment you add to what Jesus has done, you in effect, you're in effect saying Jesus is not enough. While scripture clearly says Jesus is enough. He is for us righteousness. There is no other way to the Father. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. We are saved by faith apart from the works of the law. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, not a result of works so that no one would boast. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Number three. So, first of all, he is our wisdom. Second of, secondly, he is our righteousness. And thirdly, he is our sanctification. So Jesus is not only enough for justification, making you right with God, being your righteousness, is also enough for sanctification. 
And 28 years after my conversion, I realized this in a wonderful way on Monday, 7 December 2020. In other words, six days ago. Let me tell you what happened. I'm going to give you a bit of background and then I'll tell you what happened. So, when I was in primary school, at the age of 12, a teacher in public school took the boys aside and another teacher took the girls aside. And so the male teacher that took us aside said to us that sexual lust is not sin. It's not sin for you to give your mind to these things. Just don't overdo it. When I was 15 years old in high school, again, we had kind of a life orientation class and another teacher took us aside. Again, boys separate from girls. And that teacher told us the very same thing. And I believed them. And I had friends that spoke about these things, a lot of talk about uh, girls and uh, sexual things. And I heard all these things. And then I, when I was 17, I gave myself over. I opened a door in my mind to daydreaming about very ugly things, lustful things. And I didn't feel guilty about that in the least. Because... Those teachers had taught us it's not sin for you to do so. And I never viewed, I never bought pornography, pornographic uh, magazines, and there wasn't internet in those days. And uh, what I did do is, if friends ever invited us or we watched movies, some of those movies would not be pure, and I would watch them with great delight. And I'm ashamed to say this, but you know, the Apostle Paul also says, the things of which we are now ashamed. I'm ashamed of that. But that's what it was. And then I finished school. And so now I'm in my late teens. I'm 18 and 19 years old. And now I'm going into my early 20s. And in my early 20s, I started making. Great, I, was, I started becoming very serious about the Bible. And I started reading the scriptures more and more. And as I read, I realized that those teachers were wrong. Lust is sin. If you look at a woman to lust after her with, or with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And so I started realizing that this is sin, and then the battle started. And the battle started, I need to, needed to fight these things, and it was really hard. And, um, and still, I, I didn't buy pornographic magazines, and I didn't have internet, but it was really a battle in my mind, all these images I had seen in the past and had imagined, and now to fight that, and I'm falling again and again, giving myself up to these things, and it was a horrible battle. And then I got married, and I thought the problem will disappear, well, the only thing that really happened was I could ask my wife to, to help me, to keep me accountable. And then I did get internet, and by God's grace, I never searched and never went on to uh, look for pornography on the internet, never viewed those things. But now the battle became that there were things 
that were a temptation. Things I didn't go out looking for, but they would pop up like a magazine rack in a supermarket or uh, a billboard or an advert in a shop window. And then I had to fight that and look away. And then I started aggressively memorizing verses, actually before I got married, aggressively memorizing Bible verses to fight the sin, pray against it. And then... Swimming pools. On holiday, you go to a place where there's a swimming pool, and my wife would help me and said, don't look behind you. And that would really help, and I would battle these things and be serious about holiness. And then I did a, a counseling course. Now, now I'm in my late 20s. I did a counseling course, and it really helped me. A great help and as, I, as the years went by and I, was, I grew spiritually more and more, the battle became easier. And some things that would be a temptation to look at, uh, let's say a billboard for instance, I could ward that off and fight that. And then certain things were really just much easier by then. And as I kept on growing, eventually it came to a point where I wasn't bothered at all by, let's say, for instance, a billboard or magazine rack. I could just walk straight by and not be tempted to look at all. But those images flashing in my mind, and I think for the most part, by the grace of God, I can say I did not grab those thoughts. I did not seek for those thoughts. They did come flashing into my mind, and I had to battle, but it was hard. It was hard. I hated it. I was discouraged. In fact, at one stage in my early 20s, I was so discouraged by the sin that I thought I cannot be a Christian uh, because a Christian cannot have this battle so hard. Nevertheless, um, so the years went by, as I said, and it became easier. But these images flashing in my mind, sometimes 10 times a day, and at times when it was bad, 15, 20 times a day. I had to keep on fighting and reciting my verses and saying no to sin and calling on the Lord and reading books on the topic like Purity Principle by Randy Alcorn. That book shook me um, and helped me. And then I remember in 2016, we went on holiday to Pilansburg and my kids wanted to go to Sun City and say, please, we want to go to the water park. There's a nice water park. We want to go on the slides and swim. And there's a fake sea with a wave. And so we went. Um, and that was a nightmare. It was a nightmare everywhere. Women in costumes. You know, looks like underwear. Um, and it was a battle. And eventually I was so discouraged, I just left. I left. I went into the woods. There's a like a man-made forest. I went there and I just prayed. And I called on the Lord. And I wanted to avoid swimming place as far as possible and then um, that night when we got back to the campsite I said to my wife do not ever ask me again to go to a place like that and it really I felt damaged my conscience but um, years went by that's 2016 and so the years went by and more and more I was growing in Christ and these things became easier to overcome but those flashes, those thoughts, things that you saw in the past um, uh, kept on coming and I had to battle those. I hated it. 
And I would even walk like a question mark while praying about this. And then I decided in the past year, I decided I am going to go all out. Blood and guts and sweat and tears. I'm going to aggressively pray against this sin every single morning of my life. I'm going to beg God to break the chains of this sin once for all in my life. I'm going to plead with Him to break the bonds and set me free from this thing. And about, let's say, a month ago, we went on holiday to the south coast. And at the south coast, now I know... We want to go and see Ushaka Marine World. There's a dolphin show and seals and there's a massive aquarium. But there are also slides and swimming pools. But it's midweek. It's out of season. There won't be many people. And I took a book along thinking I'm just going to go site somewhere and read my book. And go to the aquarium if there are many people. Uh, and my wife also said she thinks that's the best idea. But we got there, and now I'm not tempted to look up. I look at my feet like Proverbs 4 says, stick to the path of my feet, just look straight down and walk wherever I need to go. And then I come to the place where I think, all right, my wife and children are here, and I look up and I look straight into someone in, uh, who's barely dressed in her costume. And I look away and I say, no, and I fight this and walk away. But that night I got home, and actually before that I had secretly prayed, Lord, please let it rain so we, so we won't be able to go. But, all right, we did go. I got home, and I, I asked the Lord for forgiveness. I said, Lord, I ask you to break this sin in my life, but I put myself in a position where I will be tempted. Please forgive me. All right, so next day, I, and days following, I keep on praying, I keep on pleading with the Lord earnestly and zealously praying Lord break this sin in my life but then I start wondering is it right to pray this way Jesus has already set me free if the son set you free you're free indeed the bonds of sin have been broken how can I now pray Lord break it but then I feel but yes in it's true that I've been set free but in reality it doesn't feel like that and so I come home and I continue praying and then Monday, 7 December, a man from our church, Gideon Strauss, comes to my house. Uh, we're going to discuss something else about ministry. And then when we're done, I don't even know why. I just say to him, Gideon, I want to tell you a story. So I tell him the story. And I said, I need help. Am I praying in a wrong way? Am I praying wrongly by asking God, break the chains of sin in my life? And this specific sin also. And he didn't say it in so many words, but basically he did say, yes, you're praying wrong, uh, wrongly. And he explained something to me, and after he explained that, it felt to me like I was born again, again. And Tuesday, and Wednesday, it felt the chains of sin had been loosed. It had been broken. I felt like that woman in Luke 13, he was bent double for 18 years by the power of Satan, and Jesus just... Heals her in an instant. I felt like that. It's like the chains were gone after 24 years of struggling with this thing. Although it did get better, but it's like I just maneuvered and learned how to deal, how to live with a problem. 
And uh, the next day and the next day and the next day and this whole week, it's like it's gone. And I know it's gone. You say, how do you know it's gone? How did the woman know she was healed? These thoughts had been in my head 10 times, 15 times, 20 times a day they would come. And it's gone. Now let me tell you what he, what he told me. And let me just uh, put a disclaimer here. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying don't fight sin. I'm just saying do not look in yourself for the solution. Look to Jesus. And so yes, there's a place for introspection. But not to such an extent that you start focusing in your sin rather than on, than on Jesus. And that is what, what Gideon helped me to see. He helped me to see, he spoke of another person who had an addiction and, and was enslaved to the sin. Now, although I'm a Christian, so I'm not enslaved to sin uh, in, in my status, but in reality it felt like bondage. Nevertheless, this other person also kept on praying, Lord, break this sin, break this sin, break this sin. And eventually the Lord showed the person, you're praying wrongly. You're focusing on the sin. So days go by where you're not tempted. And then still I'm praying, Lord, with all my might, break this in my life. And what am I doing? I'm focusing on the sin. And that is in the same context that Lloyd-Jones helped a Christian. This Christian, he doesn't say is it a man or a woman, but this Christian had been tempted with blasphemous thoughts. To, and it became so bad that the Christian um, was tempted to commit suicide and went from pastor to pastor to pastor for help, for help. And all the pastors said the same thing. Just keep on trusting the Lord and pray about this problem. And when the person got to Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones first, firstly made very sure, certain, is this person really a Christian? And when he established that he was certain the person was a Christian, he said... Not only refuse to think about this, but I want to I give you counsel. Refuse to even pray about this problem. Because you're not really praying about it at all. You're just focusing on the problem, aren't you? Wow. The person went away, followed the counsel, and came back a week later and said, it's infinitely worse now. And Lloyd-Jones said, exactly as I suspected, which means Satan is behind, of all, behind all of this. And so he said, keep on following my, my advice. The person did so, and a few years later wrote, after that second council, I went away, and the problem never returned to this day many years later. The counsel the other pastors gave me just drove me deeper into bondage. Lloyd-Jones' counsel was excellent. And so Gideon gave the same counsel without knowing that Lloyd-Jones had said this. Here's the direct quote. I thank God that the doctor, Lloyd-Jones, gave me that advice. The best pastoral advice I ever had. Satan was crushed under my feet and remained so after all these years. And so in the same way, I, I had been praying wrongly. I'd been focusing on myself. I'd been focusing on the sin all the time and not on the solution, on Christ. And just like Martin Lloyd-Jones, that helped. Gideon also helped me to start praying when the temptation comes, Lord, I want more of you. And pray that every day, more of Christ, more of Christ. And the Lord showed me, Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. I don't need anything else in creation to, to bring ultimate satisfaction. Nothing else can fill the void. That would be like trying to fill the Grand Canyon that's 446 kilometers long and 29 wide and 1.8 deep and you think you can fill the Grand Canyon with a bucket of water, you can't. 
Nothing in all of creation ultimately will bring satisfaction. Not Facebook and many friends and many likes on Facebook. Not having a well-built body and you're slim and slender. Not having lots of money. Not having lots of possessions. Not having the approval of men. Not becoming famous. Food won't do it. Sex won't do it. Tobacco, smoking won't do it. Alcohol won't do it. Drugs won't do it. Nothing will ultimately satisfy and fill the void. If you, if you try and find your satisfaction in those things, you'll always be searching for more. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear not with hearing, says Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's like drinking, says Jeremiah, from broken cisterns, broken water bowls, cracked water bowls. They cannot hold water. They cannot quench your thirst. Five husbands you have had, now you're on to number six. You're not even married to him. It doesn't satisfy. Because God designed it that way. It cannot fill the void. Only God can fill the void in your soul. Drink of this water. You'll never be thirsty again, said Jesus to that very same woman with her five husbands on to number six. So do not find your satisfaction. Do not seek your satisfaction in the world. You will not find it. Seek it in Jesus and you will find it. That's what C.S. Lewis meant. This is... Some famous quotes from Lewis. He said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Another quote. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly treasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing, meaning there's something else. That's also what Psalm 37 verse 4 means. When David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. David doesn't mean, oh, if you praise Jesus enough, the things you really want then Jesus will give you. Selfish desires. It's not what it means. What it means is, if you find your satisfaction in the Lord, your delight in the Lord, then he will put the right desires in your heart. And he will satisfy those desires. He will fulfill them. And so, yes... It is right. Confess your sin. Yes, it is right. Pray for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But focus on Jesus. Focus on the cross and not on your sin. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ, said Robert Murray McShane. Jesus is enough. As I realized this week. Riches I heed not nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. 
So yes, enjoy God's good gifts in life, the things that are permissible, the things that are not sin. God has given all things richly to enjoy, but thank the Lord for these things. Praise the Lord for these things. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you see Him as the fountain that satisfies, that quenches your thirst when you read the Bible, when you spend time in prayer, when you have fellowship with other believers, when you take the Lord's Supper. You drink of the river of His delights. You hunger and thirst for righteousness and He will satisfy you. And that will help you also in circumstances where you are married and your spouse does not love you or where your parents have rejected you or your children have forgotten you or you are single and you do not find a marriage partner. You want to be married or you cannot have children. You desperately want children or you've lost a loved one in death or you are poor. You do not have money or you do not have health. You are sick. Yes, it is nice. Yes, it does bring joy to be loved and to have a spouse, to be married and to have, to have a measure of health and to have success. Yes, that is nice. But in the end, not even those things can satisfy you ultimately because you will lose all of those when you die. Only Jesus can satisfy so that you will never hunger again and never thirst again. My grace is sufficient for you. Finally, He is our salvation. Number four. So for us, the, the term salvation, is a, it's a religious term. But in Greek, the term really has, it has the idea of paying a ransom. Uh, it's someone who's been taken captive, he's kidnapped, and he will only be set free once you pay the ransom. A rich person comes and pays the ransom. Christ is the ransom. Christ paid the ransom to buy us back, to set us free from the power of Satan and sin and death and hell. So he's our redemption, verse 30. And we could do nothing to redeem ourselves. Jesus and his death on the cross is enough. John 19 verse 30. And that has practical implications. It has practical implications not only for the one who is unsaved, but also for the Christian who feels I'm struggling to break free from sin. We need to remind ourselves lots. And this I started doing this week. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. I praise you, Lord Jesus. The cross is enough. It is enough for everything you need and more you'll be like an ant on a whole continent filled with food you don't even know where to start you'll never finish it and even if it were possible after 10 million years for the ant to finish all that food we are talking here only about earth we don't even know point zero 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 one percent of the riches of jesus christ and in heaven we will know more. We will see more of this riches forever and ever. <coughs> and then we'll realize that all the wonderful things we experienced and enjoyed on earth, as Jonathan Edwards said, that's only a sunbeam. Jesus is the eternal sun. This creation is only a drop. Jesus is the ocean without bottom or shore. 
And then you'll remember Jesus is enough. And then what will happen is what happened to me by the grace of God this week. The things that drew and pulled at your heart like a magnet will lose its power. And you'll, you'll be like someone when you, when you try to draw that person with pig food. It doesn't draw him because he's tasted, he's tasted oxtail and chocolate. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Lord, and I pray that you would do this for many a person sitting here. Remind them, Jesus is enough. These other things cannot satisfy. They can never fill the void or quench the thirst. Only Jesus. Amen.